0: Hi. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
1: Hello, listeners.
0: Dana Stevens
1: here. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this is the last week to get a great deal on Slate Plus memberships. Right now, you can get six months of Slate Plus for just $29, which is 50% off the usual price. As a member, you'll get zero ads on any Slate podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from our show and other shows, like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. This is your chance to support everything that Slate does— from our written work to our podcast episodes, which I and I think everyone else at Slate do everything we can to make worth your time. So please, if Slate podcasts have become a big part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work and the work of our colleagues by becoming a member. You can sign up at Slate.com slash Culture Plus to access this special deal. Once again, that's six months of Slate Plus for just $29. The offer is good through this Friday, October 28th. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, two-severed thumbs-up edition. It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. On today's show, The Banshees of Inishirin is a new movie from writer-director Martin McDonough. He, of three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, it stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two, friends locked in a mysterious feud. And then Disney, of all people, brings gory horror spectacle to the small screen with Werewolf by Night. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal and Laura Donnelly as monster hunters trapped on a creepy estate. And finally, we discuss an article on Forbes.com whose headline, I think, speaks for itself. Maybe Gen Z have canceled the thumbs up emoji, and here's why you should worry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Join, joining me today is julia turner the extremely brow furrowed julia turner uh, emoji slinger <laughs> extraordinaire uh julia of course is the deputy managing editor of the uh, la times hey julia
3: hello, hello
2: and of course uh dana stevens is the film critic for slate.com hey dana
1: hey
2: uh should we make a show let's do it all right well Parak and Colm, if I'm pronouncing those correctly, meet every day at the local pub on their home island of Inishirin to share a pint and a laugh. But right at the outset of Martin McDonough's new film, Column tells Parak baldly, without explanation or apology of any kind, they will not be on speaking terms going forward. Column is in his 60s, a fiddler who lives alone with his beloved dog. Parak is about 20 years his junior, an easygoing and unambitious man who's very much at home in this tiny world. He's brokenhearted as he would be by the mysterious loss of his one really close friend. But as he persists in pursuing his affection, Column vows he will cut off a finger for each attempted reconciliation. What follows is a strange mix of a, you could argue, light, hearted comedy and tone occasionally and an old testament allegory about the intractable darkness of the human heart the movie stars colin farrell and brendan gleason it's written and directed by martin mcdonough okay in the clip we're about to hear park fatefully breaks their silence and demands an explanation let's listen up
0: now if i've done something to you Just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. Did you like me yesterday?
2: Oh, did I? Yeah.
1: I thought you did.
2: <laughs> so, Dana, you know, this is an extraordinary two-hander, of course. Two terrific performances are at the heart of it. But I think there's some place else to set it up. It's very much a movie about a place and a time, very specific place and a time. The place is this somewhat brutal and lonely little island outpost and the time is 1923 a civil war is raging audibly on the mainland maybe talk a little bit about that as it contains all of the you know rather remarkable things that happen in the course of its plot
1: yeah i mean i will start out by saying that i was jumping up and down for us to do this after seeing it and writing on it last week It's just great. I really, really encourage people to see this movie, even if you aren't already a freestanding Martin McDonough fan. There's going to be a certain built-in audience for this movie, which is people that already loved In Bruges, which is a movie from... I don't know, over a decade ago, that was also written and directed by Martin McDonough with these two guys in the lead. You know, a little bit of a similar sort of Laurel and Hardy vibe between them, although they they play people whose friendship is becoming more intimate in that one instead of less intimate uh, in, in this story. Um, but Outside of, you know, folks who are going to flock there just because those three names are connected with it, I really hope people will give this movie a try because it's just not like anything else I've seen in a long time. So, yes, it is true that this movie is set in a very specific historical time and place, though it takes a little while to figure that out. Because Ineshera and this fictional island where they're living is so remote and so, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say countrified that we could be in almost any century, much less decade, but we do start to realize via various signs like horse and carriages going around on the island, uh, although presumably cars did exist in 1923, uh, or like you say, um, the sound and sometimes the sight of explosions from the other side of the island, um, from the other side of the bay, that is the the mainland of Ireland, um, where this civil war is going on. But what I really, really appreciate about The Banshees of Inisharan is that it doesn't reduce its meaning and its purpose to, you know, being an allegory for that war or for war in general. It doesn't seem in many moments to be trying to make a bunch of Points or sort of score uh, any kind of message cred with the audience. And to me, that makes it so much more profound. Samuel Beckett is someone who has been mentioned, of course, also an Irish playwright like McDonough, um, who's been mentioned in connection with the vibe of this movie, right? It's sort of existentially bleak, but also funny in the way Beckett could be very funny. And, you know, it's about big questions, really big questions like the purpose and meaning of life and friendship. But it has this playful and sometimes cruel tone to it. It's about cruelty in some ways, but it isn't cruel toward the audience, and that, I think, sets it apart from some Martin McDonough movies. Um, you might remember him as the director of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which, while accomplished in many ways and certainly original, I think turned a lot of people off because of you know, its, it's cruelty toward its characters and its kind of darkness <laughs> about, uh, about the future of humanity. This movie has kind of warm and cold currents flowing simultaneously and I love the way it manages those tones I also think Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson have never been better I don't know I mean I'm just I'm just jumping up and down repeatedly so Mm. I'll stop and hand it off to the two of you but I didn't expect to love this movie as much as I did and just hearing that little snippet from it made me want to watch it again because it has my heart
2: Mm. Julia what about you
3: I love this movie and I was surprised by how much I love this movie because of how much I disliked three of Bullboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I remember having the exact opposite qualities of that, of this movie. I remember that movie feeling sort of like strident and exploitative and, you know, dim about American politics and class in ways that were perhaps understandable, um, but also just manipulative and like, I really, really didn't like that movie. And then in Bruges, I I think we might've talked about in Bruges in our like first week of existence on the show or month. Um, You know, and I remember it sort of as a textured caper and I found this to be kind of profound and beautiful in the exact opposite quality of not really directing you to draw too much of a conclusion. I mean, my heart and sympathies were very much with the rejected friend and Colin Farrell, the linearity of his eyebrows. Like if you could just give an Oscar to eyebrows (laughs) for this performance, like his eyebrows, they're like caterpillars on speed, but slow, but they just are so expressive and mobile. And um, both performances are wonderful. And the performance of Carrie Conlon as um, Porig's sister Siobhan is amazing too. And I just adored it. Steve, Are you team column or team Porik?
2: Oh, um, I should start by saying I'm not team uh, Martin McDonough. I don't. I don't like his work almost uniformly, and I thought three billboards was was a train wreck in the kind of mawkish race parable, class parable way by someone who didn't understand, as you say, Julia either American race, class, culture, folkways, speech, um, none of it. And I think this is a return to form in the sense that it's a very familiar territory. His early plays, which made him a star on Broadway, were all set in very similar worlds, And I thought there was a courage to this movie that you don't he'd never i mean he does give his younger friend a reason in this movie in a way which is actually one of my least favorite scenes in the whole film he, he says essentially i'm he for some unexplained reason he believes he has about 12 years to live and he's come to this revelation in his life that he's wasting them and he wants to compose his simple fiddle tunes devote himself more singularly to music and at least pay a kind of homage to those people who left something lasting and 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 meaningful of themselves behind and he he sees you know his life dwindling away in a pub with this faffer who said like that's an english word probably not an irish word this you know lay about this happy layabout, and he just needs it's a, it's a movie about amputation in one very literal sense the cutting off of the fingers which is vivid and and really horrible and it 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 just makes embodied in the bloodiest way what's happening between them. It's really a movie about amputating yourself from what community you have. And in that sense, Dana, it's an absolutely pitiless homage to just the intractable perversity of the heart, right? Like, like it refuses the very modern temptation to say, here's why he's doing this. It is just a singular act of perversity. But uh, in the one thing, I mean, in addition to the performances, the one thing I have to give McDonough as a director, he seems to have come, I mean, he's made huge leaps as a film director. And the atmosphere of this movie is so pervasive. You are so deep inside this world. And visually, it's actually, in some ways, a modest film, but in other ways, it's absolutely stunning, you know, ode to a very specific looking and feeling place.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right that in terms of craft, this is the best film Martin McDonough has made. I mean, it definitely is also true that he is more at home in Ireland and in the UK than in America. You know, he made another movie besides Three Billboards about the U.S. that's kind of like a a crime caper called seven psychopaths that also doesn't work at all. And I think has, it doesn't manage to pull off that dark tone without leaving a bad sour taste in your mouth. This movie not only balances that tone perfectly, but we haven't really talked about this. It looks incredible. The cinematography is beautiful and very well considered establishes that sense of place very simply, but very effectively Um, the, the, the music by Carter Burwell is this great kind of fairy tale soundtrack that's full of these little glockenspiel tingly sounds and just just things that take you into this somewhat you know celtic folklore almost kind of world it's i don't know i mean i think this movie is profoundly accomplished at what it sets out to do and it that may not be up your alley because it is not quite psychologically realist <laughs> you know you have to accept as not quite an allegory but something as a, of a fairy tale what's happening in this community and between these two men but i feel like once you do accept this movie at its own terms which it lays out pretty well it it accomplishes all of that kind of perfectly. I also wanted to, to shout out some of the smaller performances, because Martin McDonough, as a former playwright, has an almost a kind of a company that he works with. He really likes to work with the same actors as you know the two leads here um, over and over, and Carrie Condon, who plays the sister, the bookish sister of the Colin Farrell character, who is miserable on the island because everyone on the island is boring, as she points out at one point when you know her brother's friend complains, well, he's feckin' boring! She says, you know, you're all feckin' boring, and uh, the island is just too small to contain her. She's a great character, wonderfully played by Carrie Condon. Also Barry Keown, I don't know if you guys agreed, but he's there's something really just talk about Shakespearean. He's he's almost like a a puck or some kind of holy fool figure. Um, Barry Keown, who unfortunately people may know more from, you know, the fact that he's now in Marvel movies, but he's just this fantastic Irish actor who's just beautiful in a small role as the kind of village idiot of the of the small island. Um, all I do when you keep bouncing back to me, Steve, is just raving more about this movie. Um, no, and maybe that's just because I enjoy being surprised. I like going into a movie thinking, eh, Martin McDonough, he's done some good do- stuff, done some bad stuff, wonder how this will be. And then just feeling transported and entranced for two hours. It's a rare thing.
3: I mean, I hear what both of you are saying. I guess I feel like I want to get to the meat of this, which is I was serious. Are you team? Like, <laughs> Do you find yourself siding with one of the fellas? Or do you find yourself sympathetic to both of them? And why is this particular question of whether it's acceptable to end a friendship in a cloistered world where you don't have very many options for friends, why does that seem so cruel? Is it cruel? Is it acceptable? Like, I think there's just like moral questions at the heart of the movie that I'm curious to hear you guys, your responses to, because they very much colored. I, I found the moral conundrum I mean, yes, there's beauty, there's craft, there's the score, there's the scenery, et cetera. There's the performances. But like, I think part of why I responded to this differently than I have Martin McDonough's work in the past is I think the actual question is interesting and interesting at this kind of moment post-pandemic of a lot of re-examination of relationships and what works and what doesn't. And a lot of people being stuck in their own islands with whoever else happens to live on the island and having I mean, to stare them by island, I mean, isolated house having to stare people in the face and figure out whether you still want to talk to them every day um, and actually like them. And I, I just, I'm, I'm curious to hear what moral chords the film struck for you with the, with its avenues of inquiry.
2: I wouldn't say that I side with either one because I think that would rob the movie of its primal force somehow. What I would say is that, you know, Colm gives him a reason and, you know, he gives him the reason of, I, I want, to give some gift to posterity, and that's my music. And I'm, I can't, there's theres just something eating at him about the time now considered wasted, you know. And not only does he give the reason, the movie then shows you that Colm, as a fiddler and a teacher of music, is flourishing. It's in these little asides, but it's very definite. In fact, at one moment, Park, Dana comes in and interrupts him as he's giving this sort of beautiful you know, Celtic music t- tutorial to young musicians who are playing along with him. So he's actually making good. He's not just picking up with someone else and having a pint or frittering away his time in some other way. And I, it certainly ups the stakes of Pork's inability to see that for what it is, cruel though it may be, and as a friend, respect that choice.
1: Right. And that choice also, Colm's choice, I mean, to to cut off his fingers, the fingers of his left hand, the one that's doing the violin picking, you know, it, each time that, that his ex-friend talks to him, you know, this kind of threat that he issues at the beginning of the movie has this kind of O. Henry story quality, right, where Mm -hmm. the very thing he claims to want to do with the last 12 years of his life, which is play and teach violin, fiddle to his to his friends in the pub, can't be done if he follows through with the promise. And that's the place I think that the movie exits uh, identifiable psychology, where you could ask things like, whose side are you on and goes into this place, you know, this realm of kind of metaphor or fairy tale where you know primal resentments are being acted out that don't really have anything to do with each character's best interest right I mean there's a self-destructive negativity in the Brendan Gleeson character that is his kind of tragic weakness and then there's this I don't know what you would call the sad sweet adorable Colin Farrell character's tragic flaw but essentially he can't leave well enough alone right he can't stop pestering his friend and asking why and trying to fix it somehow and so to me and I say this in my review, my my identification kept shifting between the two, but I think that that again was all just being skillfully managed by the screenplay and the actors. I don't think it was the case that the movie was wishy washyly not able to decide kind of who was right, and especially if you think about where the movie ends, which we won't spoil. But you know, there's there's almost a sense that it's like some Miltonic, you know, battle between Mm. the two that that can't ever be won on earth, you know? And in that sense too, it does become, it's not a heavy handed allegory for the civil war that's going on at the same time, but in a way it is about human conflict and the way that, you know, ridiculous means or purposes can turn into tragic outcomes. And I I think the movie is so profound about not answering that question exactly.
3: Yeah. I I sympathize with that. And then I also feel the movie does i think i'm more team poric i think i'm team kindness <laughs> I'm not team art <laughs> it's it's i'm laughing because it's it would be silly to reduce this movie so um so fruitlessly and i think actually in in the path of the character of the sister siobhan you see a way to balance ambition and kindness that is does not involve bodily harm <laughs> but the fact that um The the sense that Calm's despair leads him to make this perverse threat, which you know, if the problem is that his friend can't take his art seriously enough, the notion of levying a threat, which is you will rob me of my ability to do my art, which already it's established that the friend doesn't sufficiently respect, like it's a it's it's the wrong threat, and it feels like the threat, the kind of mutilatedness of the threat even before the mutilation to me suggests like a kind of damage in the rigidity of calms the rigidity of his desire to pursue his art and the kind of cruelty with which he um and absolutism with which he decides to pursue that but i'm still puzzling it over and i totally agree dana everyone should go see it I
2: agree okay it's uh the banshees of inisheeran the new movie from martin mcdonough it's in the theaters now. Uh, one day, of course, it'll be streaming. But maybe check it out sooner rather than later. It's a beautiful-looking movie. In addition to everything else, all right. Let's uh, let's move on.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: All right. Now is typically in the course of the podcast, we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have?
1: Stephen, the business this week is just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about a new quarter being issued. I believe it actually comes out this week that has an unusual face for U.S. currency on it. It's the face of a cultural figure, which in itself is unusual on U.S. currency. It's the face of a woman, which is also unusual. And it's the face of a Chinese American for the first time that an Asian American has appeared on American Money. It's Anna Mae Wong, the silent and sound movie actress who was a big name in her day. We'll talk about that. But she's not so somebody at the forefront of the cultural imagination right now. She's an interesting choice for the new series of women quarters that the U.S. Mint is coming out with. So we will talk about Anna Mae Wong, her legacy, and what it means that she's showing up on our money. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to hearing that segment at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Slate is having a sale on memberships right now, so you can get six months of Slate Plus membership for just $29, which is one-half, 50% off the usual price for a membership. Members get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like that anime Wong quarter segment I just described, and, of course, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate. These memberships really matter a lot to keep the magazine going, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show.
2: All right. Well, Disney, it's not exactly a name you associate with the horror genre. But then again, if it's in the MCU, it'll be exploited. And lo and behold, there was an MC, a Marvel character from the comic book days, uh, Jack Russell, a.k.a. Werewolf by Night. I think the first one was 1972, maybe. And so he arrives now inevitably on the screen, (laughs) small screen, Werewolf by Night is on the Streaming Plus platform. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal, summoned to an ancient estate whose patriarch has recently died. He arrives to find four other monster hunters with him. They must fight to the death to see who gains possession of the Bloodstone, a magic gem conferring superpowers and longevity. It also stars Laura Donnelly as the patriarch's estranged and very formidable daughter uh, in the clip you're about to hear the title character the werewolf is trying to assure his new ally played by Donnelly that she shouldn't be too worked up about his condition
0: you see I've got systems to manage
2: the hurt They could cause I don't
3: care about your systems just stay away from me until you can't
2: but they, they work you'd be surprised they, they actually work because I'm not like that I'm like this you know I'm I would never hurt you or hurt anyone. Any hunting that I do is done by a part of me that is not me. And that's not the part you're with right now. All right, Julia, let me start with you. There's a great semi-maybe hidden fact about this movie. It's directed by an A-list movie composer, Michael Giacchino. How do you think he did?
3: I love this weird little object. And I did. I, I hadn't thought of my, Michael Giacchino as a director. Um, and I do think there is some, just kind of attention to the sensation and mood of the moment that feels in keeping with, you know, what what composers are doing primarily. Um, but I enjoyed it, and I think the two central performances of uh, Gail Garcia Bernal as Jack Russell and um, and Laura Donnelly as Elsa are really compelling. And I also enjoyed seeing Fraser's agent, B.B., as this, like, uh, evil convener. And yes, I
1: Harriet know, well Sansom Harris. She kills in that villain role. She's so funny. She's so
3: fabulous. There is only one bloodstone. And it can have only one keeper. So I don't know. You just say, oh, you're tuning in for the latest Marvel Entertainment. And I did not expect like an art house jewel box homage to like B movies of yesteryear. But that's what I got. (laughs) (laughs) Dana, what did you make of this?
1: I mean, that is exactly why I've been wanting to do this ever since it premiered on Disney. I don't know, probably a month ago. We finally waited until the week of Halloween, the last possible week of the month of scariness to talk about this monster movie. But from the minute I saw it, I was sort of like you had me at Michael Cicchino directing And an homage to Universal, Hammer, you know, old school kind of black and white monster movies. Uh, I don't think this completely pulls off the strange thing that it's trying to do. But I will say this, I was trying to figure out the format because the weirdest thing about it probably is the length, right? Werewolf by night is fifty-two minutes long. So it doesn't feel like a TV pilot. It doesn't feel like a movie. It's in this universe, right? The the MCU that seems to be begging for teasers and spoilers and Easter eggs and hints about sequels, but it doesn't have any of that stuff. It really is a self-contained hour that I suppose could be spun off, but it completes its own story. And while I was watching it, I was thinking the closest thing I can think of to what this feels like is a Twilight Zone. And then mm. I, and then mm. we read an interview with Chiquino, you know, researching for the show. And what did he say? Oh, I was inspired by the Twilight Zone. He was actually thinking of that kind of, you know, um, sort of golden age TV when he was making it. So that in itself, just the, the solitary nugget factor um, made mm. this kind of endearing. Also, just come on, Gael Garcia Bernal. It was this, It was striking me that last week we talked about Diego Luna, right? Another. Mexican movie star who co-starred with Gael in the great Itumamata Ambien over 20 years ago. Now they're both in their own separate well one is a series one's a freestanding standalone show but you know they're both kind of doing their their Marvel Star Wars thing and they both bring something from outside into it. You know, it's being a non-American, right? That's one element that they bring from sort of outside But also, both of them just don't quite seem right for a Marvel or Star Wars hero. They're not buff. They're not, you know, big, bulked-up macho dudes. There's something sort of delicate and beautiful about each of them. And they're both perfect in those roles um, and really kind of make the show. So, um, Gael is a werewolf, yes. Uh, Standaloneness, yes. Does everything work in it? Not completely. I mean, for a 52-minute show, this has a lot of Marvel-style fight scenes in it. And frankly, I was tuning out during them, and that felt a little bit like not quite fan service, but, you know, a studio service. (laughs) Like, this couldn't brand itself as a Marvel show unless it had, you know, the requisite, 50 times that a guy is getting punched out and his hand is cut off and his hand is then used to fire a weapon at someone else you know kind of stuff it's done fairly well and briskly but I do wish that Giacchino had had a little bit more time to dig into who the werewolf was maybe had him transform more than one time into a werewolf because that scene is great Uh, I don't want to give away how it's shown but there's a lot of practical effects in in when the werewolf transforms for the first and only time and that in in itself the fact that there's not CGI or not a lot of cgi in that scene and that there's indirection you know like showing a shadow on the wall that's used instead of um instead of showing a digital transformation of his body it's just really fun and sweet and uh yeah you 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 don't have to love horror to like this because it's not particularly scary you could watch it with a 10 or 11 year old kid probably um but yeah i'm i'm all in i would do more of these standalones and i would see more from michael
2: yeah I loved everything about it that cut against the you know basic you know m c u imperatives, as you say, Dana it's like the standalone is totally anomalous within that business model. You're always teasing setting up or or calling back and and milking nostalgia you know um and this does really kind of neither um I love Bernal and Donnelly are both terrific. they have chemistry in the in the leads. And (laughs) Harriet Sampson Harris is kind of a revelation. Her voice work alone is hysterically funny. uh, And, you know, just like grand guignol or whatever the expression is. It's, it, it, I mean, she almost, you know, kind of makes it, you know, in the sense that she's the person who sets the whole thing up in the plot, but also throws all of its, you know, preposterous spookiness over the whole, the project that and also just the look and feel of it. I mean I knew nothing about, you know, Giacchino as a as a director. Um, but he's very sure handed. And the, you know, obviously the largest choice is filming in black and white in this throwback vintage way. It reminds me of sitting at home on the carpet in front of an old console TV and watching like Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, or something Uh, and the one source of color in it is the gemstone which is you know a nice little touch um the one thing i'll say julia though is that at the end of the day marvel can't help itself right at the end of the day there's a talismanic object that confers superpowers that everyone's fighting over and a you know protracted fistfight is what determines possession of it and you go back to this like extremely crude reductive template and it's everything else is so good it doesn't ruin it by any means, but it's boring.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think my challenge was less that it was trying to fit into the Marvel Universe and more that I'm not a fan of that old-school universal... Like, I don't know what you're supposed to get out of those exactly, not to sound too transactional about it, but I, I, I appreciated the lightness of tone here and that it sort of... The stakes felt very low in a way that was um that worked for me. Like the typically the stakes in a Marvel movie are all of civilization is about to be vaporized, right? And yet the way in which it is about to be vaporized is so CGI'd and full of like grayscale garbage that you don't actually care about the vaporization. Um, you know, it's like represented by like one hunks earthbound girlfriend or something. And in this instance, the stakes are like MacGuffinishly low. Like who will possess the blood red movie? <laughs> who? You know, it's like, I don't know, who cares? Um and I don't know. It like leaned into leaned into the skid, right? Like it was just, it just felt like a it was aware of its own significance in the world in a way that was at mm-hmm. odds with the general grandiosity and pomposity of of Marvel Blather. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I do think we're at a moment in Hollywood with the sort of consolidation and financial pressures coming to all of these streamers where kind of beautiful, weird little furblows like this are just going to get... Squashed, I'm sorry mm. to say, like, I just think the appetite for making irrational things to stuff out your streaming roster is going to start getting pinched. So I don't know that we're going to get 20 more of these. Um, I assume that Kyle will be back to do something else in this character at some point, and there seemed to be a lot of fan love for the Man-Thing. Oh, God, i got to remember the name of the Man-Thing. But anyway, the monster. There's another monster. I think his actual name is
1: Man-Thing, in the comics at least, although he's never called that in this show.
3: Man-Thing by Day. Anyway, you know, I can't wait for the buddy comedy between uh, Werewolf by Night and Man-Thing by Day, which surely this is setting up, but um,
2: (laughs) I, I did the by Banshees man- of Anna Sharon
1: has nothing on Werewolf and Man-Thing.
2: But the, the, is the Man-Thing, by the Man-Thing, do you mean Ted, the sidekick monster? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Wait, Julia, he has a name. <laughs> Ted. All right. Well, it's sort of a genuinely lighthearted fun. And uh, you should check it out. It's great. It's on Disney Plus and it's a, it's a little Halloween treat. All right. Moving on. All right, well, the writer John Brandon in Forbes has uh, written an article called Gen Z Have Cancelled the Thumbs Up Emoji and Here's Why You Should Worry. Um, Julia, that's a crazy silly headline, uh, teaser headline. And of course, you know, the New York Post, a Murdoch rag is uh, hyping the idea that there's a generational battle, that emojis are being canceled. But I think effectively, if I'm correct, what we're talking about when, for example, young colleagues of Boomer, you know, employers find their use of a thumbs up emoji too abrupt or the heart emoji somehow comically anachronistic or inappropriate is it, it there are nuances and subtleties to online communication that only someone who grew up almost entirely in the age of social media will come to understand, and they get established organically and laterally among peers, as I know, witnessing my children and the way they make fun of my usage. Um, is that what's going on here, a kind of micro-generational battle that's relatively harmless being hyped by journalists, or is something larger and more ominous going on here?
3: Well, there were two two primary texts we were looking at for this piece, right? The, the, the main one is... Um, Gen Z is canceling the thumbs up emoji and why you should worry or whatever that headline is, which is truly just a gem, a gem of headline writing. And that one is from the perspective of, I think, a Gen X or boomer who's like, I just figured out emoji. And now I'm told they're not cool. And, and um, is, is I think on Forbes and is truly just like a um, worthless piece of internetting apart from the headline. Like who cares about your emoji use, dude. Um, But uh, Dana also flagged for us in the course of our research a piece in the Atlantic called the gif is on its deathbed noting that this, you know, very popular style of kind of early teens communication of responding with reaction gifs or selecting and clipping the exact right couple of frames of, of response, uh, and, and popping them into a, a Slack or a, a chat or a group chat, um, felt, um, like a beautiful way to communicate for a while. Um, that that may be ending for various reasons and no longer seems cool. And each of them is a different example uh, with differing levels of erudition, of a similar piece, which is like a generational decor of like I thought I knew how to communicate, and the next generation says I'm lame. <laughs> and I think there's even more pathos to the to the millennial, the the Atlantic piece, which is written by a self-avowed millennial who is, I think, having that generational experience of newly lamenting, um, being superseded by the next generation. We older types have been superseded several times over now, and so it's I'm, I'm very comfortable with using lame modes of communication. I've got no problem with that. <laughs> um, but but the sort of particular pathos of the millennial generation, which which felt like it owned the Internet for so long because it was the first generation to truly grow up, Natively online, um, I think, seems like it's really wrestling with the fact that the internet changes every, you know, eighteen months, um, and the next generation of internet users is is sneering at a couple of interneting tics. Um, so I think what we're seeing here is not technological change or a massive shift in modes of communication, but the fact that slang and habits of chit chat evolve and inevitably part of the point of their evolution is for the youngest among us to find ways to feel new and fresh and to articulate their particular realities. And for we older types to, you know, struggle to keep up and um, have our own feelings about our impending deaths um, prompted by the death of the GIF, for example. So it's all about mortality, um, (laughs) but it's fine, (laughs) is my conclusion.
2: Um. Somehow Julia managed to turn a couple of trashy articles, uh, zeitgeist hustling articles into uh, <laughs> uh, Old Testament <laughs> allegory. but um, you, you get get off of initial last. Um, but uh, but Dana, I, am I wrong to see something, if not ominous, certainly meaningful here, which is that what there is actually a serious conflict, very, like deeply serious conflict. Um, between generations about what the sort of general framework and ethos of communication etiquette should be. Um, and it can be spun by right-wingers as trivial and, um, uh, you know, even juvenile and overly demanding and and like morally sensitive to a degree that gives being moral a bad name. It can be spun by, you know, um, people on the left as, an utterly necessary change as we move away from, you know, white older white men, boomer men, um, as the default leaders and owners of public spaces and public speech. Um, you know, uh, I guess we have to take it on a case by case basis. But you know, wh- as soon as you translate these debates from "my kids make fun of me for using the heart emoji" or thinking "lol" mean mean meant lots of love, into the workplace. Um, and um you know uh, any kind of official or semi-official mode of communication on a campus for example all of a sudden it's a hugely consequential debate no
0: I
1: guess. I mean, I'm not sure that it's being, in in, in this (laughs) particular circumstance, I'm I'm not sure you can make that argument because, like, are people being offended? I don't think that this Uh, argument about who's old and who should use what emoji, which I think is ultimately completely silly, like I've said many times on this show, that all the kind of, like, mediatized generational warfare that's constantly being staged seems completely unreal to me. Like, it doesn't really affect most people's lives that much. And most divisions that, you know, group people come along the... The, the dividing line of, you know, politics or, or, you know, ethnic identity or gender identity or class, all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what generation you're in and mm-hmm. what your emoji right. usage means about that. So, I mean, insofar as I think this is an interesting topic for us to talk about it, and I, and I do, I'm glad that we're taking on this topic, I think it's to sort of put into question the 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 faux ominousness of the second half of that headline with here's how why you should be worried you know i mean what is the greatest thing that the author of that article seems to fear or that the you know the people um offended by their um their younger counterparts criticizing their emoji usage fear they fear being thought of as old? Like, who cares? (laughs) Compared to what? (laughs) You know? I mean, it also seems to me that when I think about how emojis are used by lots of people I know, and we've had a whole segment before on this show once, I think at a live show, we talked about emojis in a different context, just our own personal usage of them. And it struck me, including with the response to that piece from listeners, how uh creatively and differently, different people use them in ways that have nothing to do with their generation, right? I mean, there's the ironic usage of things. But there's also I think I talked about this at the time, like a friend of mine, who's roughly my generation, who makes rebuses out of her emojis, and <laughs> will send entire lists groups of emojis that you have to sort of like put together like a puzzle for fun, you know, or draw faces with them or something. Um, you know, I think I mentioned that in my family, each of us has an emoji that represents us. So you know, we can send that as part of a conversation about what we're doing. I mean, there's there's a playfulness. That's why people enjoy using them, right? They're little cartoons that sort of mm-hmm. make communication, digital communication, right. a little bit more playful. And... I just don't think I don't really care what some group of people is arguing about what generation uses them in what way. I mean, another example of this, I guess, would be the GIF, you know, whether GIFs are really corny to use or not. I use GIFs all the time because I'm a film critic and I'm often talking to other film critics online. And it's fun and playful if you're talking about movies to go back and forth posting little moments from those movies. It just it, it's it's an integral part of the conversation you know so in that sense like the picture is doing something that words couldn't do i don't know i mean maybe i'm missing the point of this conversation but i could not shrug more about what people think my usage of anything (laughs) means and in fact i designed a bitmoji for myself you know those characters you can design where you go through and make them sort of look like you and i always thought bitmojis were completely silly and corny but i painstakingly designed one that looked as much like me as possible just to torment my daughter who i guess is Gen Z, um, you know, about the corniness of it. So, whenever she'll text me something, I send her back some ridiculous bitmoji of myself, like, riding on a rocket ship covered with hearts
3: or something like that, just to make her laugh. Mm -hmm. You know? I also send people bitmojis for their birthdays and they are... um They are definitely uncool, and that's the point. It's kind of fun. I mean, I guess there's just this sort of hysteria of, like, oh, no, it's the Internet. I don't know how to use it. It's like people don't know how to use language. Like, miscommunication happens with all of the mediums of communication. And people make language choices that reflect their, like, Age and upbringing, and thus it will ever be. And like, yeah, just don't freak out about it. Like, what is the 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 absolute lack of consequence in all of this? Right.
2: So you say, um, I would. I, I mean, I'm. I'm like, I feel like I'm trying to inflate a gigantic pool floaty out of this topic, right? And it kind of is in the shape of and looks like an anvil, but. Even at the end of the day, when I get this like fourteen foot tall thing inflated, I'll just be exhausted, and it's still just a bunch of hot air, right? Like I, you know, <laughs> Wait,
1: a pool floaty shaped like an anvil. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like it's still oh, the bobble episode on.
1: title that never was. <laughs> it,
2: it's going to bobble <laughs> on harmlessly on the surface of the water, um, and uh, you don't try blacksmithing on it. But the one thing I would say is that there are these internally generated nuances that that got immediately added to the pre-existing store of, like, GIFs and emojis or whatever, and, like, um, you know, little a- acronyms or whatever you want to call them, little um, abbreviations, that one reason I think young people resorted to them is they're just in a constant game of evasion to not be their elders, as they always have been and should be. And so all of a sudden, like, you know, certain things... Take on an importance that older people don't understand, um, and so you're you're bound to keep on making this generational gaff to the extent that you communicate with like my kids or whatever, and they're fine. They can just ma- they love making fun of me, but you know, I I do think that there is an ongoing, highly consequential debate about what rules govern. Like unwritten rules, by and large, govern public, semi-official discourse, especially in the workplace and campuses. And so, when there is this friction between generations, you can get into something serious. And the final thing I'd say, and this to me is what I really believe: this isn't the pool floaty. This is this is this is the actual substance of of it. Is that there is just this graceless way in which the baby boomers will not exit the stage literally until the fucking side of the reaper, you know, comes and gets them. And that's where I land with this. It's sort of just try to try to grow with an ounce of grace and self-consciousness.
1: But Steve, if I can once again insert my complete skepticism about this whole generational Um, series of divides we're supposed to be arguing about, aren't you part of the baby boom, technically? I mean, wouldn't you have been born in the late years of what's called the baby boom? And I would agree that you don't seem culturally identified with the signifiers of that generation, but couldn't somebody point at you and say, okay, boomer right now?
2: Of course, I would expect them to. They do and should. I have no problem with that. I mean, the one thing I would say is I'm absolutely 100% on a cusp uh, as... um, demonstrated by the fact that half of the you know demographers say that I'm um, Gen X and half say that I'm baby boomers, I'm literally at that moment where you're sort of neither one. And I will say one of the quirks of my life is that someone three years older than me feels like they are a member of a completely distinct generation from me and someone three years younger does as well. And I think that that's somewhat curious, right? Like I definitely I definitely note it repeatedly in my own experience.
3: All right, well, in conclusion, everybody communicate however you want.
2: All right, that is bound to go smoothly. Let me read that preposterous title one more time. Gen Z have canceled the thumbs-up emoji, and here's why you should worry. It's enforced. Here's
3: why you should worry. (laughs) Grab the bloodstone.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Your spooky voice is terrific, man. I so sad it comes out only once a year. Yeah, it sure is. All right, let's move on. All right. Well, now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, What do you have?
1: Stephen, I'm going to endorse the movie that made me stay up way too late last night. I was tuning in to watch uh, Werewolf by Night, the, the one-hour Marvel special that we talked about. And when I turned on the TV, TCM happened to be on, and the 1962 horror film Carnival of Souls happened to be just about to begin. So... I just fell into the hole. And even though I've seen this movie several times, I mean, it's almost Halloween. I had to watch it again. Do either of you know this low-budget horror movie from 1962, Carnival of Souls, black and white? No, I do not. No? All right. Well, I'm afraid that many people listening, if you're a cult horror person, you probably know this movie already. I would not classify myself as a cult horror person. I don't seek out horror movies just because I want to have that sensation. But when the right one comes along, I completely get why that sensation is pleasurable. And if you enjoy that sensation, you can have it watching Carnival of Souls, one of the weirdest horror movies I can think of. So... Carnival of Souls is a very low-budget movie. It was produced and directed by a guy named Herc Harvey, making his only feature-length movie, and it just has this feeling of sort of creepy rightness, where even though all The choices, almost every choice in it seems to have been made because the budget was only (laughs) $33,000. At the same time, every one of those choices works incredibly. And it's so, it's got so much artfulness in it, given how low that budget actually is. And I don't want to give up too, too much about it, except to say that it's about a young woman who has a car crash and afterwards starts to have all kinds of very strange experiences that you don't know if they mean she's gone crazy, you don't know if they mean she's in the afterlife, or if she's just in a supernatural world. But, well, Julia, one of your least favorite movie tropes, An Abandoned Carnival, is involved in Carnival (laughs) of Souls. no! I will never watch this! (laughs) God damn it! And the whole thing has just this very culty feeling that has been cited as sort of like early David Lynch... Um, you know, it could it has a little bit in, in, in common with sort of slasher movies, but it's not extremely gory. It's much more moody. Uh, there is a lot of organ music in it, because this young woman happens to be a church organist for a living. Always a good job to have if you're going to be the heroine of a horror movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all I can say is that it gives you this feeling of creepy unsettledness throughout, and images that you'll never forget, even while you can't quite say that the plot makes complete sense. And Anyway, it's all vibes. It's Carnival of Souls from 1962. And it's not hard to find streaming on any platform. I know that it's on TCM right now this month.
2: Oh, that is marvelous. Julia, what do you have?
3: That's a sensational endorsement for something I will never watch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so there's this singer-songwriter... I've been a fan of hers for a while. Not sure everybody's really aware of her, but she's got a new album out and I really think it's worth a listen. It is called Midnights and the singer's name is Taylor Swift and oh, I just <laughs> you know, really think people should give her a chance. You know, she's she's like an artist. She's got really interesting things to say about the world in her voice using her authorship and um it's time to reconnect with Tay. I'm just trolling Steve, but I do really like Taylor's new album. I mean, I think I, it's sort of halfway between Pop Taylor and Folky Taylor. And I am still listening and it remains to be seen whether there are um, epic bops for time immemorial on this. Um, there's a particular song called Antihero, which is just the apotheosis of everything that's irritating about her shtick of like kind of uh, everybody hates meism, um, that is understandably irritating to many and yet the song is so good and has a very funny chorus and it's super catchy and I was singing it all last night. It's me Anyway, Taylor Swift, Midnight's, uh, check out the song Antihero
2: and, um,
3: enjoy. You know, Julia. Yeah,
2: Steve. You had to administer a little bit of gratuitous Halloween poison to taint the whole show and bring me within an inch of the grave. (laughs) But as the rigor mortis, <laughs> as the, as the rigor mortis rises up, chilling my body, with premonitions of a blank afterlife, <laughs> I have the antidote right here. Okay, because I too am endorsing a singer songwriter uh, who's actually good, and uh, it comes to, comes to us from a surprising uh, place, which is you. Everyone knows the band from the 60s, The Zombies, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? What's Your Name? Who's Your Daddy? Is He Rich Like Me? Um, you know, they had a couple of huge hits. Take in the sort of a somewhat star-crossed career. They broke up right before uh, their best record broke and became hugely popular, on and on and on. Well, it turns out, I didn't know this, a friend of mine told me this past weekend. and well, you know that the lead singer of The Zombies, Colin Blunstone, made like a masterpiece of a solo record, kind of in the Nick Drake singer-songwriter, mopey, you know, really deep english celtic folky um vein and it's it it it, it's a record it's called one year i think it's from 71 or two um and these songs are extraordinary i mean it is regarded as a masterpiece and it is it's just a, a tremendous like beautiful contemplative it's like all of what's really uniquely bewitching about the zombies but just sort of sent in a very different direction with um, you know string arrangements and uh, finger-picking guitar and then his vocals are so precise and sort of unexpectedly Baroque without being show-off-y I mean there's just wonderful melodic swoops to it that are just great I love it. It's just a tremendous record. I cannot believe that the vault like got shaken one more time, and some beautiful, beautiful gemstone fell out of it and saved my life this Halloween from the poison of pop optimism um, and Spike, which is Julia Turner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um it's Colin Blundstone, Blunstone B L U N S T O N E Colin Blunstone he the lead singer of The Zombies his solo record from the early 70s one year check it out
3: like if we've learned anything from this episode it's that we should record like a universal style spooky season radio play I feel like we all have good spooky voices that <laughs> is, were like unbeknownst to me low these 15 odd years of taping this show so Vince and Bryce watch your back
1: I love it next Halloween all spook edition yes, absolutely
2: get
3: your zithers out
2: you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culture And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Please do. We love it. Uh, our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.